I wanted I wanted to share with you all something that I learned about our podcast this week. Oh no! Well, some feedback I got. Oh, I'm scared. So, no, so I've been getting a lot of my clients have listened and been lovely and been giving me a lot of feedback. Which, by the way, if you are hearing this, give us feedback. <laughs> I I like hearing it. I don't know if Ricky and Corey do, but uh, we've gotten some. No, good I like tickets. feedback. So give us feedback if you're listening to this. But one of my clients yesterday told me, she's like, I've been listening to the podcast. I really like it. And I send it to my mom. And she took copious notes. I think that's a huge milestone when you got moms listening and taking notes. And not to mention, Ricky, as I believe your mom was pretty pumped for the launch of the podcast. So I was thinking before, and I think we got a mom cast here on our on our hands. Michael. Got a mom Wait, cast. That, is, that is a very sweet little piece of feedback. Oh yeah. No clear answers. The podcast for moms. New hashtag. New um, hashtag. Only moms that have like, are very comfortable with swearing. To no clear answers, where we explore the common challenges all humans, creators, and leaders face, and break down preconceived notions of common self-help ideas. We are your hosts. I'm Ricky Goldenberg. I'm Justin Mulvaney. And I'm Corey Wilkes. Welcome, Corey, everybody. Was so warm. Corey was so warm right there. Did you feel how warm Corey was? He I really like a took a hug. He took a pause there to find it, and I appreciate yeah. that about you, Corey. <laughs> Good. It's 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 that southern charm, you know. Yeah, charm is a word I use for Corey a lot. We are I've been here today. As many things. Charming is not one. Go ahead. Yeah, you have your own charm. Um, we're here today. I I was thinking about this episode in advance, and I. I personally think this might be one of the most important episodes that we've recorded up to now. It feels really near and dear to my heart and really important to me. So I'm excited for the conversation we're going to have. Um, and we're here to talk about inner critics. Another term I've heard used for this is inner bullies. Uh, so we're going to talk about inner critics, inner bullies. What are they? How do we frequently see them show up? Because in my experience, it's not common that people raise their hands and go, I need help with an inner critic. Kind of need somebody to point to them. Where they come from and how we, when we work with our people, work with them. So to kick us off, I want to start off with describing what each of us sees an inner critic as being, right? And if you're listening, the goal of this is uh, I think I think we live in an epidemic of inner critics. I think they are ubiquitous. I think a lot of us have really mean voices in our heads. Um, and my goal with this initial run-in for us describing it is to kind of help you find the shape of yours. Because early on, my experience was I, I was very identified with my own. And it can be really useful to to hear people describe it so you can create some separation in your head. So for me, uh, an inner critic, I, I find it really useful to think of this in terms of um, parts work or persona work, or there's a, a branch of therapy that's feels like it's been growing a lot lately that's been really helpful for people called internal family systems. Uh, and the idea with this is uh, human consciousness and human psyches are, are not best described by single origins, um, but by a collection of parts. Right. Um, and most of these usually will say something like you have a, a core essence or a core self that is underneath all of this. But frequently, whether we're, we're triggered or in different contexts, different parts of us come up. And some of those are vulnerable parts. Some of those are protector parts. Some of those are firefighters that uh, kind of handle emergencies. Uh, and for, for me, the, the inner critic is a very specific part of you. It is the part of you that judges you, 
that blames you, that demeans you. It's often a voice in your head that really um, <clears throat> looks for and harps on all the ways that you are inadequate. So it's a voice that really carries you around that kind of beats you up. That's why I like the term inner bully. Like normally this voice in my experience is really mean to people. Um, it, it's a voice in people's head that is really just just vicious and kind of mean to them as they walk around in the world. Ricky and Corey, what you got? You hear inner critic. What is it? I think it's just this little gremlin in your head that's just a professional shit talker. It's just like, I'll get into it later, but critics are, <laughs> critics are pointless. <laughs> so all an internal critic is, is just a way for you to undermine yourself, your own confidence, your own self-esteem, your own self-efficacy, your belief that you are capable. That is the sole function of an inner critic is to undermine everything you're trying to achieve. Ricky, what about you? There's a couple things that I think about for inner critic that I think is also important, which is that, so our inner dialogue is very, very, very fast. And it's so quick that it's often not necessarily in language. And so oftentimes when I talk to people about this, it's also about recognizing that it might not sound like an, a gremlin sitting in you. Usually as you start getting better at recognizing it coming up, it might be this little gremlin that you're focusing on, but there's a couple things that I want to notice. So when I think about the inner critic, it's actually often emotional flashes that people experience. So it's not necessarily words like, oh, you're going to fail at this. Oh, you're not good at this. It's almost the emotional charge of what that feels like without language, without direction. And it's just sort of these feelings. Usually if you're experiencing it, it's when your heart rate is going up. You're almost going into fight flight. Like it, it's a little bit of a chicken little feeling. It's usually when I think about inner critic and how it shows up for most of the individuals that I talk to about this. Uh, I also learned that for some people who don't have inner dialogue, some people don't have inner dialogue. This is, I, uh, I'm not that person. I learned folks, this, this trivia fact recently and my inner dialogue is so loud that I actually, if I'm being fully honest, I don't believe it. I think, there, I think right? it it's makes like, so little sense to me. Some people don't really have it. I can't I fathom that. It's I don't, wild I, to me. It feels central to being human to me. I can't if, fathom not having If someone it. does not have this, I need you to, to contact please, us and tell us everything us. about it. But I my need, point is, is that I talked to someone, I, I've talked to a few people about this and someone noted that they were like, it's not really words, you know, it's kind of like these emotional flashes or these feelings. And so I think that's also important to note as well is that when we talk about inner critic, it might not be personified for you. I think over time it does get personified. Now, Corey, yes, little gremlin. I also big fan of recognizing that the inner critic is often just trying to warn you. Like, I think a lot of times it gets a really bad rap because it's quite unkind, but sometimes there's little morsels of information in the inner critic that's not necessarily, I mean, it's quite, it can be combative. It can be kind of fiery. It sort of wants you to think that the sky is falling, but there's these little moments that it's kind of noting, oh, you might be doing something for the first time. You might be doing something that's outside of your comfort zone. You might fail at this. The problem is, is that the inner critic, when it is a little gremlin and a little milk, it kind of just jumps into total mayhem. We should ignore it. You're going to fail. And so those are the things that I think about the inner critic is that I think it's really important when I think about inner critic, a couple notes. One is that it's not always dialogue. Sometimes it's emotional flashes if that resonates with folks that are listening. And it might not be like specific language. And also uh, the inner critic is a bully. And also sometimes is also giving us information, which we should ignore. That's okay. Maybe we ignore it. But sometimes we can sort of have a relationship with the inner critic, which I feel like is something we're probably going to talk about today. Yeah. Yeah. So if that's what an inner critic is, what I said earlier was I find in my coaching, curious about your experiences, it is extremely rare that somebody comes in and goes, I need to work on my inner critic today. Right. That's, that's something I almost never hear. And so more often, right. As a coach, I notice it and I go, mm, there's a really big inner critic here that is getting in this person's way. And so for the two of you, when you're working with folks, 
what are some signposts? What are some things that when you pick up on them, it makes you go, mm, I think this person has a big inner critic that might not be helping them. Rick, you want to go? Yeah, I think that it's, it's, yes, I agree. It's very rare that someone says, I want to make better friends with my inner dialogue. It's more often that as I'm hearing people that, um, I usually hear it more often when people are leveraging kind of excuses for avoiding things or their blockers. It comes up more that it's like, oh, but I'll fail at that or, you know, or I'm not good at that or it's, I, I'll never do that or I'll always do this. It's usually around language that there's, that you start to recognize a pattern of thinking and it's quite harsh to themselves and quite negative. And that's usually when we'll start to hone in on it. Right. I was, I was, um, I was just talking to a client the other day who we met and we were meeting because they have been recently promoted and they're managing a team and they're trying to navigate like, what does this mean? How am I going to be judged? And they're like, you know, I'm, I'm not a good manager. All my previous, I'm not good at what I do. All my previous promotions have been because I was already doing it. You know, like it was all this really negative and they're like, I'm not sleeping. It was really negative feelings. And as we're talking, we're sort of exploring it. That wasn't true. Right. This is this this is a person who's an incredible manager who has been managing for years, who has finally been recognized for what they bring to the table. But because this inner dialogue is so negative, it was really hard for them to push that out of the way and see, oh, no, this is it's scary. But I but I am qualified and I can do those things. So I usually think about it as when people are using pretty negative self-talk in the discussion with me is when I am like, some things there. Agreed. Like <clears throat> people may come for like imposter syndrome or they are, they've become a bottleneck in their company, things like this that are related to absolute beliefs that they assume are just a universal truth. Like I suck. I am going to fail at this. I am not good enough for this thing. Right. And it's a pattern because they don't necessarily think to question it or to dig into, well, why do I have this belief? Where did it come from? How is it affecting me? What beliefs do I want to have that are maybe more empowering versus debilitating? Right? So like who so, told you that, Corey? Exactly. It's like always the question comes up for me. Exactly. Um, and sometimes it is an overt thing. Sometimes it is more um, gradual. Right. So like sometimes a person may have said, Hey, you're a piece of shit who's stupid and you're never going to mount anything. But other times you could have just been like a toxic environment. Right. Mm -hmm. And then over time that sinks in. Um, that's usually more so what I see with clients is they don't know necessarily because the main thing people come to coaching for is like clarity, strategy, and accountability. Right. Those tend to be the, the main reasons people come to coaching. Well, if your client had all the clarity they needed and knew what to do and how to do it and had the, the, the discipline or the accountability to get it done, they probably wouldn't come to you most of the time. That's usually the, the role that we fill for a lot of people. So helping them gain that clarity of like, hey, you keep saying this. I've noticed that like that's a pattern. It seems rooted in some sort of inner critic or toxic personal narrative limiting belief, false assumptions, those sorts of things. Yeah. For me, signposts of an inner critic. Shame is a big one, which I think, Ricky, when you described um, it being emotional states and not always inner dialogue, that's one. Uh, a big hallmark is when somebody comes to me infrequently in, in coaching and in your work, you can think of this, that we're making commitments. I'm going to go do X, Y, Z. ABC. Mm -hmm. One hallmark of an inner critic is when I don't meet my commitments or I don't meet my agreements. If there's a pattern of a huge amount of shame coming in when that happens, right? Of making myself really bad for not doing that. So that that's one thing I notice. There's also a, a general sense of um, mistakes feel really, really charged, right? Anytime I make a mistake. Anytime something goes wrong, like you said, Ricky, it feels like there's this chicken little 
right? Like, ah, what the hell is wrong with you? How could you make a mistake? Right? The inner critic, uh, in my experience, frequently, they don't allow for a lot of humanity. They don't allow for a lot of error. That's, that's why they're very closely tied to perfectionism, which we intend to talk about next week. Um, and yeah, I can, I can think of someone very specific that I worked with where the, just the sense that I got is they were really not on their own team. Mm. Like the way, the way they moved through the world, they were not on their own team. They woke up in the morning. There was a voice in their head that was making them inadequate. And the way they moved through the world was pretty consistently like trying to prove that inadequacy wrong. Right. Like they were just in a war with this inner critic in their head that was telling them they weren't enough day in, day out. And Corey, I think you made a point like this. In my experience, the thing that that I tap into is it's just a huge energy leak to be doing that. Right. Like the cost of of having an inner critic that loud, it's like it's walking around with like an anchor strapped to your ankle. Right. It's walking around like with a parachute or what I like to say. It's like driving with a parking brake on. Right. Like everything you're doing, you're having to combat a voice in your head that says you're not good. You're not good enough for this. You can't do it. There's no point. Right. And so if you notice a lot of resistance in you and like you're really fighting to prove yourself or fighting against something in your head. When I see that, both in myself and in people I work with, that's a sign, ah, this person has a pretty big inner critic who's getting in their way. Yeah. So I've, the, the point I really wanted to go to next, which I think Ricky or Corey, one of you dove into is what, where do these inner critics come from, right? Like, are we born with them? Do they, where do they emerge? Uh, and the reason why I find this useful is in my own journey with inner critics and in in working with other people on inner critic, I do think it can be really helpful to track back and go, how the hell did this voice get in my head? Was it always there? Did, did I put it there? Did I inherit it from someone else? Because like you said, Ricky, the inner critic, it frequently serves a function or at least it originally did. And so I think there's a really good reason to ask, like, where do these, where do these friggin' things come from? How do they drop in? So Corey, our professional, please um, explain <laughs> it. So I, I think about inner critics as more, more in the terms of like a, a personal narrative, specifically a toxic personal narrative, right? Which is just the stories you tell yourself about yourself, what you're capable of, what you deserve, the world around you, those sorts of things. And an inner critic does all that too. For a lot of people, the issue they run into is typically this, this criticism or this toxic personal narrative was originally external, meaning your toxic mother would talk shit to you, or you had an awful boss who would always degrade you, or, you know, you got bullied a lot growing up, things like this. So initially this starts with an external source, somebody outside of you talking shit to you. But over time, these external things seep into your mind and become internal. The issue is you think that these are your thoughts, but they're actually somebody else's words in your voice, in your head. But until people recognize that it, it's really difficult to, to change, right? Cause once you realize, Oh shit, these aren't my words. These are my ex's words still swirling around in my head, in my voice. Well, I control what thoughts swim in my head. I don't want these anymore. These aren't mine. These aren't my beliefs. These are someone else's words. I get to choose whether I perpetuate these words or I do not. Right. For me, like with, you know, in the creator realm slash entrepreneur realm. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm obviously, I'm mostly white, not a child of immigrants or anything like that. Um, but what I consistently hear from creators and entrepreneurs who are from other cultures or are children of immigrants and things is for a lot of people, your options are doctor, lawyer, engineer, maybe accountant, and then failure. Those are your options. If you are not the first four, everything else is lumped into a failure. So for a lot of creators 
or people, you know, or just entrepreneurs in general, that is that fifth category. And it's just like, my parents don't understand. They, you know, they're, they're constantly criticizing me. That makes me question myself. I don't know if I have what it takes. And it's, it's that because if you grew up in, in a household like that, whether it was due to cultural reasons or not, that started as an external thing. But over time, you have internalized it to where now, not only are you trying to do hard shit, you are passively, subconsciously pulling yourself down and making it even harder for you to do the hard things because you're constantly questioning yourself and criticizing your every thought, motivation, and action. But that's usually where it comes from is some sort of external source initially that then becomes internalized. Yeah, Corey, my, my, my experience is it, it frequently happens. Um, yeah. When people in some culture that they endured for a while, right. That maybe their family system, maybe school, it may be, maybe a work, but yeah, there was a hypercritical voice. And then my story is at some point you're getting berated with criticism so much and it hurts. It's like, ouch. And at some point, we just internalize it. We just take it and go, well, I'm going to get it anyway. So I might as well do it up front to see if I can mitigate some of it externally. Right. My boss is going to ream me out anyway. So I might as well ream my, my, myself out ahead of time so I can see if I can get ahead of it or, or same thing with my parents. Right. And so I see it as being a very adaptive mechanisms mechanism. And I have more thoughts on where it comes from, but, just responding to that. Yeah. Part of me sees it as a very intelligent survival mechanism, which is I'm getting it from people out there. It hurts. If I, if I think of it ahead of time and start to internalize that voice, maybe I can get ahead of it. I think, um, Corey, as you were speaking and Justin, you too, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pull out a social thing that's happening in the world, which is, are you, (laughs) we're doing it. Pop culture. Have you guys watched the bear? Have either of you watched the bear? All right. Well, I have first not. Of all, I've, I've, first I've of all, heard all about. First of all, it. fuck both of you. Get your shit together. I'm just kidding, but I actually think that if because listen, bears very hot. We're all looking at Carmi. We all know it. They are too. Let's be real. But anyway, there's a great episode in season two. No spoilers. Don't worry. That basically, you know, he's a chef. He's worked in really toxic work environments, and you actually see there's a scene where he sees or thinks he sees someone that had been quite toxic to him. And his whole narrative is basically almost a mixture of his own voice and their voice saying terrible things to him about who he is and what he's worth, which is nothing. And it's kind of this dialogue and you're sort of watching the whole scene. Maybe this is a spoiler, but it's not a big one. And he's having this whole dialogue that it's like, you're not worthy. You're not going to do a good job. You're a fuck up. You're terrible. And he hadn't even seen the guy that he thought he saw right? It was like, he didn't even need the guy to have this thought process. And so Corey, as you were talking about this and Justin, you too, you can really, that scene is a really good example of recognizing inner critic, how it can come from this external source and still has absolutely no value and is, is quite painful. So you guys were talking about that. And I was like, I'm going to bring up the bear, which neither of you have seen. And that's fine. Please someone else who's seen the bear. Just recognize that scene. Thank you. Um, yes, thank you. But Justin, you said you had other reason, other ideas about kind of where it comes from. Tell I, us I, more. I do because in my personal exploration and exploration with other people, it's sometimes people can't always pinpoint a loud external voice that they inherited from. Mm-hmm. And I I have kind of two explanations. I, I think this can develop just very personally. And I think it lives in our culture at large. And both of these things, one thing that I see is like, hey, failure hurts, right? Like there's an ouchie from failure. I think we learn that very, very early. And I think it is frequently a natural response to failure to be really hard on ourselves, right? And it may not always track linearly to a single person. It may just be picked up. And if we're being honest, I think some of the intelligence of inner criticism is in certain short-term scenarios, inner criticism can be really useful 
motivation. Like it burns dirty. It burns dirty. There are negative side effects for your psyche, for your relationships, for the people around you. But I think it is a very, at times, powerful motivator to beat the hell out of ourselves just for a sprint. And so there's another version of this where maybe it doesn't always track super clearly, but at some point, young without being super conscious of it, we just learned like, oh, it turns out if I beat the crap out of myself, I'll study really hard from the test and then I get a 100. If I beat the crap out of myself, I'll try really hard at this sport and then, oh, I perform better. And what mm -hmm. started as this linear little almost success strategy just starts to become all consuming and become a much, much, much larger voice in your head. It's so funny because as you were speaking, I have another client that we were talking about, the inner critic, and we, we were having like a group discussion and I asked, you know, what do people do with your inner critic? What are some tips and tricks? And everybody had these different things. And Justin, what you just described really comes up. W one of the individuals, she was like, yeah, you know, when I'm having that voice, what I do is I go to the mirror. And I just say it all. She was like, I say the nasty stuff. And she was like, I just say it. And she was like, and then I stop and I'm like, all right, I'll prove you wrong. I was like, yeah, that's so, I was like, I, I loved it. Cause she was like, you know, I recognize that it's happening. I bring it there. And I basically say you, I'm going to figure it out. And then she also had some other activities that she took on, which I'm sure at some point we'll start talking about things that we can do with the inner critic. But but I loved it because as you were describing, it's like, yeah, it can, it can be a really powerful motivator that you're sort of like, F you, I'm going to fix this and I'll fucking watch me. Oh, I can't do that. Like fucking watch me is, is an, it can be an energizing experience for sure. Yeah. I think it can go both directions. It can go, yeah, I'm going to prove my inner critic wrong. And also for some people, I think some people, let me make it personal for me. Sometimes my inner critic, it's like. <laughs> It's like the jockey on top of the horse. It's like, run faster, you piece of shit. Run faster. Mm, yeah. And I, I, if I'm honest, probably for the first eight years, 10 years of my career, like most of my early working experience, that was purely my motivation was like, wake up. You're a piece of garbage first thing in the morning. Let's see if today you can, by the end of the day, not be a piece of garbage. So as a psychologist. As a doctor. <laughs> So I think it's about short-term versus long-term effects, right? Short-term, using self-flagellation, basically trying to hate your way to success or hate yourself to succeeding, can work. You can use hate. You can use a chip on your shoulder trying to, to prove other people wrong. You can use that as an effective fuel source to achieve certain goals. The issue is the aftermath of long-term effects because you can hate yourself to success in the short term, but eventually you're just kind of left hating yourself, right? Because once I achieve this success and I don't have these enemies to prove wrong anymore, I still have this fight. And then I realize, well, fuck, there's nobody else to fight. I have to just fight myself. That is one reason why you see a lot of people who use self-flagellation, self, self this inner critic as a fuel, they build fucking empires, but they're, they continue to be miserable. Not like there's a void, like no matter what they accomplish, all these external things, they're never satisfied. They're, they never enjoy things, right? That is the, the long-term downstream effects of things like this, which is also why most people who eventually do enjoy their life realize the path that, that this toxic fuel source was taking them down and then decided to make a switch. Right. Which what sounds like what you did, Justin, right? Like I got a lot of shit done in 10 years, but I fucking hated it. Right. Like when you wake up and you basically say, I'm a piece of shit, I have to earn the right to enjoy my evening. It makes for a very stressful life. You get a lot of shit done. <laughs> and it's, it's again, like, at what cost? Sometimes right? you don't even get a lot of shit done. Well, that's no, the I, thing is. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, it's also really so reactive. <laughs> I mean, yes. I think like, Corey, you said this really well, that it works in the short term. But I think that when we're listening to Chicken Little, it's reactive. 
it's responsive. It's always on. And if this is the voice that is guiding you, that has self-flagellation and aggression and intensity and negativity, like that can work for a short sprint, but for long-term, you're not making, you're not thinking strategically. You're not taking long-term thinking, right? It's like, oftentimes it's, it's, it's a fast response and it's a rushed and unconsidered response. If you want to listen to chicken little in your head. Well, it's great job security for therapists, right? Like if you're a therapist <laughs> who, who fucks with like burnout executives and shit, golden, right? Because this this fuels that industry. But, Someone will always want you. <laughs> right. But like my thing is <clears throat> whatever you consistently do, you get better at for better mm-hmm. or worse, right? If you consistently run, you get better at running. If you consistently worry, you get better at worrying. So if you consistently practice the behavior of hating yourself, of talking shit to yourself, of flagellating, which if you don't know, it's like you take a whip and like hit yourself. That is self-flagellation. Catholics know the term. Non-Catholics tend to not. Um, That is the term. The more you do that, the better you get at it. Okay. Which is why a lot of people, they'll practice this for 10, 20, 30 years, the majority of their life. And then when they try to make a change, they're like, fuck, I can't. All I know how to do is hate myself and talk shit to myself. What do I do now? And then they try a new, they try fucking meditation or some shit for like 20 minutes. They download an app and try it for three days. And they're like, this doesn't work for me. Well, no, because you're comparing 30 years of hating yourself and worrying with 20 fucking minutes of relaxation. Of course it isn't going to work because you suck at meditating or you suck at relaxing or, you know, unconditional positive regard or or self-love, whatever the fuck thing you want to do. Of course you suck at it because you're comparing 30 years of the opposite to 20 minutes of this. It takes time. I also like that meta experience of the inner critic critiquing your attempt to quiet the inner critic. Yep. They're <laughs> like a fucking you just pro. described like a meta experience of I'm trying to quiet this voice and it just gets louder. I, I this is I want to make one point, but this will transition into working with the inner critic because what I have found is the inner critic is a tricky bitch. Right. Like <laughs> that exact thing can it, it can get so meta where you go and you're like, God, I just want my inner critic to shut up. Like, why the fuck can't I get you to shut up? Why? And it's like, it's right there. It's right back. So yeah. I find that work because it's, like you said, Corey, and this is my, honestly, I full candor, I'm making it seem like I've, I just had a big breakthrough like this, like this year. Right. Like, hey, like, like I really had to do a lot of facing around it. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm masterful around this, but this is why I'm so passionate about it. Um, but the one other thing, Ricky, you had said earlier was, uh, or we got into like, what are the costs, right? Like it's a useful short-term fuel source, but Ricky, you said super reactive, right? I'm not actually strategizing. I'm not zooming out. And my experience is in the throes of the inner critic, um, really fragile, not resilient, right? Because every failure can, can totally derail you, totally derailed me which then can make it so I'm not going to try and do really ambitious things because I'm just going to derail myself if it doesn't go well. And inherently in that for me is there's a real loss of creativity. Mm-hmm. Like it's your problem solving capacity is solved. Your capacity to like self author and go down your, my own path is compromised, but also creativity just goes to zero because the inner critic will just poo poo every idea. The moment that you think it will just kill it out of existence. And so my experience of stepping into the threshold in those moments where I'm beyond the inner critic is, God, there's so much capacity there. There's so much creativity. There's so much energy. There's so much possibility. And I paint that because if, if you really identify with an inner critic or in, and are in the throes of it, and a lot of people, including me, will go, well, it's my fuel source. Why the hell would I risk letting go of my fuel source? It's like there, there's probably going to be a, a, a an awkward transition getting away from it, but the other source is so much better. It's just so much better. But they see this as this is my competitive advantage. I don't want to lose my advantage. Mm-hmm. Yes. Look at how much other shit I've accomplished with this fuel source by yeah, how are you feeling? criticizing myself. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, but everybody's every everybody's like this is what this is the the price you pay for success, uh, which is bullshit. Uh, 
Yeah, well, I'll just tell a story here, which is um, a mentor coach of mine who also worked as like a PE CEO in a lot of scenarios was in kind of like a mentor group. And I think they were talking about inner critics and he was kind of talking about, well, God, I've this exact point, Corey, I, I, I've done so much thanks to my inner critic. And somebody reflected to him, I can only imagine the things that would have been possible for you without your inner critic. Yeah. It's like you did so much in spite of your inner critic. Exactly. Like literally in, in spite, spite you of were your doing inner critic. That's with not a, the same. With a parking brake on, with a parachute mm-hmm. on your back. And imagine what you could do now without that. Well, my question think, is if oh, go ahead. Sorry, my question is like, if your inner critic was that helpful, why are you here? Mm-hmm. That's that's what I was like, why are you here? Because if shit was working, you probably wouldn't be here. Go ahead, Ricky. No, I was just going to say that, Corey, I think that when you were speaking about the the idea of like, you know, if you practice running, you get better at running. If you practice worrying, you get better at worrying. And I think that there's, as we're starting to talk about, okay, so like, what do we do with it? There was one thing that you said, I just want to highlight to anybody who's listening is like, this is a skill set that we can build. Justin, you're definitely experiencing this now of sort of navigating. If we want to work on this, we can actually work on what is our relationship with our inner critic? What is our relationship with our inner voice? How can we, how can we leverage it as a long-term strategic tool rather than a short-term reactive combustor? And there can be like a lot of ease in that. I think that when we started this conversation, we were talking about inner critics, we were quite negative. And I was like, sometimes it's helpful. And that's because like, it can be, if we're creating a much more robust three-dimensional relationship with this voice, rather than letting it just be this asshole, it, it can actually be a productive, supportive even relationship in terms of how do we talk to ourselves how do we navigate discomfort and trying new things? So, Ricky, so, yeah, let's get into yes, it. Friends. <laughs> how do we, when we are working with people and we notice they've got big inner critics, big inner bullies, mm. a voice in there, a part of them that's just kind of banging them up all day long? How do we work with inner critics? I have a favorite tool. Can I just talk for a really long time about all the things that work? Thank you, friends. I have a favorite tool. So, so first and foremost, like there's basically, as you're thinking about the inner critic, self-awareness, so fucking key in so many of these things, right? Like we're not going to be able to navigate this unless we start recognizing and identifying when it's showing up. So that's first and foremost. We need to do that first. We get better and better at it over time. There's also this idea of separating. So it's not this like, nah, 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 nah. It's like, okay, you are a voice. You will sit here, I can see you, and I can engage with you, and then I don't have to really respond to you. So one of the activities that my coach had given me, um, this was like years ago, is my inner voice is named. She got a name, and it's not a mean name. It's not a jerk name. Some people call it like nasty me. No, she's got a sweet name. Her name is Esmeralda. It's a very sweet name. I call her Esme for short. And what this happens is that now that you can get better at naming it, you're basically, okay, Okay, I see you, Esme. Like, you think that this is going to be hard to do. It probably is going to be hard to do. Thank you so much for trying to protect me from potential failure. But you know what, Esme? I'm still going to do it. This is how I'm going to approach it. This is why I'm going to do it. Like, I see you. Thanks for, like, raising a flag. But I don't actually need you right now. And, like, I will continue moving forward. Thank you for this. So I love naming it. As, as clearly mine is called Esme, and I talk to her a lot. Um, and then there's other things that I, I have also just, can really I, worked. Yes. Can I just pause? Pa- I know I want to zoom in and highlight the conversation you just had with Esme. And okay. I was going to come back to it, but I, I, there was so much fucking genius in what you just did that I want to pause and like analyze and, and zoom into. <laughs> so I'm a yes to everything you just said. And <laughs> just – the relationship you had with your inner critic, in my experience, fighting your inner critic does not work. Point blank, it doesn't work because your inner critic will just away. Yeah, they will always, always flare up more. And the genius shift move is this is a part of me. 
It's got something it's trying to say. And my experience frequently, I'll get into my inner critic, but it's actually this like big puffed up presence that has fear behind it. And it's actually scared, but it's just being like, you piece of garbage, you got to do it. Meanwhile, it's just terrified. Mm. And, and just the, the wherewithal to be like, hey, I hear you. I get it. Thank you. And then manifesting like an adult stance, almost like an adult to a kid that's like, we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. There's just so much brilliance in that two sentence riff that you had that illuminates, I think, a lot of what I found successful in working with inner critics. My inner brain, that welcoming into my inner brain. Come on in. That's what it's like in there. Um, I also think that the other, the, <laughs> thanks, Justin. That's what it's like in, in inside of this one. Um, yes. Naming it, huge. Having that dialogue with it, huge. Um, I've also, for other folks, uh, there's a couple of resources like Kristen Neff, who writes about self-compassion can be really helpful. Ethan Crows, who wrote Chatter is a really helpful book as well. Um, I've also, my family calls it the peanut gallery, which I think is from like Shakespearean era because it was like all the troublemakers eating peanuts, watching Shakespeare. Uh, you can stack the room. So the other thing that can also really be helpful is that rather than just bringing Esme to the room, I also bring in like my partner, right? What would they say to me? Or I bring in like my kiddo. What would she say to me? Suddenly you start to flood the room with like really supportive information from people who know you, who know how good you are, who can also kind of come into that conversation too. So it's a dial. It's like a group conversation that can also be really effective. Um, I love that. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I've that I've leveraged effectively for inner voice besides those. No, I think those are the main ones. I'm sure there's others, but that I, Esme is my biggest move with folks. Corey, what about you? So a couple things. Um, so like in in my industry with creators and things, creators tend to be just naturally public facing with a lot of their stuff. So it's really common for people to share like their follower count, their subscriber growth, their revenue for the year or whatever. And it's really hard to like, if you're like a newer creator to see somebody post, Oh, I made 500 K this year. Oh, I'm on track to make 3 million this year from my solopreneur business. But you're comparing yourself at a year in or three months in to somebody who's been in it seven years right? If instead you compared yourself at three months in to where they were at three months in, a lot of times you might find that you're actually ahead of where they were, right? So sort of testing your assumptions and your expectations, sort of reframing things like that, one is really helpful to diminish that self-criticism because then you're not saying, oh, well, you know, they're making so much more money than me. Like I'm not making anything or I'm not making nearly enough or I'm so far behind everybody. It's like, but relatively you probably aren't right. There's just five, six years ahead of you. Give yourself five or six years and then reevaluate. Right. That's a really helpful thing. That is also, I mean, that's helped me too. Right. I was talking to a creator like right before we got on this call and that was one of the conversations we had. They're like, well, I've been in this four years and this is where I'm at versus so-and-so they're at, at this revenue, you know, milestone. I'm like, yeah, but they've been in an extra three, four five years in you, right? They're like, oh, holy shit. That's a, it's a solid reframe. I'm actually ahead of where they were four, four years in. That's helpful. Um, re reality testing in general is, is very helpful, but reality testing is also very logical, right? Of okay, well, what evidence do you have to support this criticism? Oh, well, I'm probably going to fail. Okay, well, how often have you, quote unquote, failed in the past irrevocably versus in hindsight, was it actually more of like a bump in the road that you quickly recovered from, right? That's just reality testing. But some people are very resistant to reality testing because they're like, yeah, but you never know what could happen in the future and blah, 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 right? I am not an emotion focused person. I am very much logical. We've talked about this before. Um, I'm not an overly emotional person across the board, but he has no feels. <laughs> I have no expression of feels. Yes. Um, but also my feels are different. Um, 
because I have practiced emotional control and things conversation for a different day and my emotional stuntedness, right? Yes. Stoicism. Um, but another way I look at it is, and I, I kind of borrowed this from Derek Sivers. He talks about beliefs that are useful, but not necessarily true. So for example, it is useful to believe a porcupine can throw its quills, even though it isn't true, right? Because if you believe, oh, a porcupine can throw its quills at me, I need to stay away from it. Well, functionally, that keeps you safe. That keeps you from fucking with a porcupine and, and getting poked, right? Even though factually, truthfully, they can't do that. So for me, I'm like, I have this criticism and things, but what would a more useful belief be? What belief, what narrative can I inject that would be more useful for the goals I'm trying to achieve? So it isn't, is it true or is it false? Or can I prove it true or prove it false? It's what the fuck would be useful in this situation? Let me try to adopt that and practice that. Um, and then a the third thing I do is anytime I start to say I can't do X, I reframe it and say, how can I do X? That way it isn't a debate. It isn't an argument with my critic. It is a very lo logical way of approaching like, okay, let me assume this is possible, but I just haven't figured it out yet. How can I do X, Y, or Z? And that just allows me to totally circumvent this whole fucking debate about whether or not I can, or if I suck or whatever. It's just, okay, but how can I get this done? That allows me to just bypass all the bullshit. I love it. Also, Corey, I'm going to throw in one thing there, which I use on like a piggyback on that, which is how can I do this? There's a book called like who, not how. And sometimes I also add like, who can help me do this? That's the other thing that sometimes comes up too with on that, which is like, it's not always, maybe I don't have to do it myself. Maybe I can bring someone in. Maybe I can ask for assistance. Maybe there's someone who's better suited for this. And it doesn't have to be me all by my lonesome. I think of this, especially Corey, for you working with creators and entrepreneurs who are probably often they're very, like we're lonely, right? We like, you don't have these opportunities for these connections. And so shifting it to like, not just I can't, but how can I? And also who and what can help me get this done? We like forget that there's a whole world around us. Justin, tell us about your tips and tricks. Tips and tricks. I'm going to bring up a lot of what's already been said, but I, I'm just going to synthesize it all together and add some stuff. Um, <laughs> I think I would start with what Corey said, which is, especially if you have a deeply identified inner critic, like if you're sitting here and going, this is me, I do this a lot. It might not be a fast process, right? It's going to take some time because you're both having to let go of an old pattern, but develop a new one. And while you're doing that frequently, we go back to the old pattern. I agree with, with a lot of my approach is going to look a lot like Ricky's. So I think one, yeah, the first step is both identification and separation is becoming really conscious and aware of when is this here from me? And then being able to start to build some separation between me and this inner critic, this critical voice in my head. I love Ricky's tool of naming it. I think that's insanely useful, a visual to it. Mm. I know one coach who will invite people to color, to paint. Um, for me, sometimes you can just toss to somebody and go, what does this one look like when you imagine the inner critical voice in your head? And you can find it sometimes really quick. Like for mine, if anybody likes Star Wars, I imagine it looks a lot like uh, Emperor Palpatine, like the evil emperor in the early – he's got like kind of like a hooded figure with it. You can only like kind of see his mouth, like very evil and, and, and mean. Ricky, don't you don't you laugh at me? Well, it's just funny because Corey's calling it a gremlin, so I'm like, I had like the gremlin visual from when Corey said it earlier, and now I have this. No, mine is like real evil. <laughs> like he's really evil. Um, so Emperor Palpatine looks like a nutsack in a hood. A little bit, a little bit. Um, Thanks, Corey. Thanks for adding that. You're welcome. And I, I, I think <laughs> the idea is awareness, separation, and then relationship actually being able to start to forge a relationship with this part to get to know it. Another tool that I really like that Ricky, what your person in this group did intuitively that I learned through the conscious leadership group is if you're having a hard time shifting and getting to know it, actually play the inner critic when you notice it showing up. 
So instead of it having be this thought stream in your head that's running you, take conscious control of the thought stream and make it really big. Make it absurd. Go into the mirror and berate yourself, right? Go come into your office and berate yourself and make it absurd and make it big. And what my experience is, is in that practice, you actually start to get to know the voice. Like I start, that's where I started to understand, oh, this sounds a lot like so-and-so. Or the big insight for me was, oh my God, this voice, like if I went all the way, I noticed I started to feel afraid. And that was the insight for me where I was like, oh my God, this inner critic, it's just a puffer fish. Like this is a very scared part of me that has decided instead of feeling and being with the fear that the better strategy is to just relentlessly beat me up. And when I do that, and now I, I understand this part of me, I have a relationship with it. My real practice when my inner critic now shows up is to notice and kind of have a conversation and go, oh, hey, you're here. You're, I see you're scared, right? Like, what are you afraid of? What's going on here? I'll hear you out. And then at some point, like you said, Ricky, beautifully going, I hear you. Thank you. Now, politely, I am the driver of the bus, not you. I'm the parent here. I'm going to have you sit down. I've heard you out. Now you get to sit down and I decide. One other thing that I had recommended to me um, that I haven't experimented with, but somebody recommended actually, let's say you do this act and you can envision your inner critic. Envision and create a protector part inside of you, right? And specifically, this is kind of what you did intuitively, Ricky, which is find a part of you that has the voice that tells the bully or critic to sit down. And not in a fighting way, again, from love, like a parent going, I hear your concerns and really hear them and do some inner parenting and I'm going to have you sit down so I can walk forward. This for me, I spent years like fighting my inner critic too, knowing it was there and going to war. And it was so insanely useful to meet that part of me with actual love and compassion and actually have it cool down. I I love that you all are so much gentler and willing to negotiate and communicate with your inner critics where I'm just like, fuck you. We're going this direction. (laughs) Dude, it just, I, it might be something about my raising, but my upbringing, Corey, but that voice in me is so strong that it doesn't work Mm. because then it's me getting critical with the critic. And it's just two sides of me at war, just driving because it, it ends up just being two critics yelling at each other. One of them yelling at this part of me going, you're such a piece of shit going away. And the other yelling at me and going, you're such a piece of shit. And suddenly I'm just in a swirl of the critic. Yeah. I think it also depends on the critic too, right? So if you have like a combative, loud critic, you might be able to kind of go like no contact, right? You're like, "Ah, no contact with you. Get out of here, which they don't really go away, but you can sort of fight fire with fire a little bit. I think Maybe it's because my inner critic often is is actually just more fear-based or worry-based or kind of like, oh, don't do that. You know, it's it's much – it might just be also be the nature of my inner critic is not – I wouldn't call it gentle. It's not kind. But it is a different flavor maybe and that's part of it too. I think that um, – Justin, you were making me think of this that it, it, a, a lot of this game is also playing with – language, right? What language are, am I using? What language is the voice using? Uh, what's the tone? You know, I've, I've heard it recommended as well that when you're playing with it, which is like, would I say this to a friend? No. Then why would I say it to myself? Like that is effective. It doesn't always work for me, which is the naming is more helpful for me personally, but I have heard that as being a really effective tool as well, which is like, would I say that to a friend? No. Also even personifying, would that friend say that to me? I think that that can be helpful too. Sometimes I leverage like one of my very good friends. If the voice is quite loud, I can be like, she would never say that. No, she wouldn't let me off the hook, which I think that's important too, right? We're not going no contact. We're not ignoring. We're not saying like, I'll do it in spite of you. It's recognizing like, yeah, this is going to be hard. Yeah, this is stressful. Yeah, like we are, sometimes we will fuck up, but it doesn't mean that we don't move forward. Ricky, I see what you said there again. I, I, this inner parenting analogy really resonates with me of like, <laughs> you're, when you think of what a friend would say, basically for me, what I'm saying is, oh, this part of me is so clearly not being objective right now. Mm. And again, mm-hmm. it like gives, what it gives me access to is like my higher consciousness that can look at this part and go, you are not being, you're not with reality, right? Like you are being kind of a drama queen about this. Mm-hmm. And 
again, I love you. You can go be a drama queen. But somebody gave me the advice that worked really well for them was not believing my inner critic needs to go away. Actually just being like, you're here. I'm not going to listen to you. Yeah. I like it. I feel like between the three of us, I feel like we also had some very like um, kind of almost an emotional, but also rational, logical thinking here as well, which I think is helpful because we're all different humans, right? For some of us, Corey, the exercise of recognizing like rea- that reality check, crazy effective, right? Because so often we compare ourselves and we compare ourselves to the wrong thing. We're not actually looking at facts and data. We're having an emotional response. And when you actually look under the hood, you're like, of course, you're not fucking where they are. They have five years more experience than you. Shut up. And I think that that, that is also an incredibly useful tool. I like a little rational logical as well. Yeah. And the, the one last thing I'll add, and I'm pretty sure I've recommended this, is one other way to escape the trap of I'm wrestling with my inner critic and therefore in my inner critic is to, sh- for me, that's been useful is to shift over into self-appreciation. And actually to explicitly go find and build that as a practice. And this for me, Corey, is like, if the idea is you've been doing this one thing over here and you don't have the muscle for the other thing, the muscle, the other muscle to build is appreciation for myself and moving from a place of self, self-appreciation, self-love, integrity, and wholeness. And so as cheesy as it may sound to some of you, I have found it really powerful to have a practice of once a day or something like just dropping and going, no, what do I what do I really appreciate about myself right now? And the other beautiful thing that I found about this is the more I've, if you're not sufficiently motivated of doing that for yourself, what I found is the more I can appreciate the self myself, the more I appreciate others. And that can be really motivating, which is as I built that muscle up, it, it very realistically spreads, which that may be able to give you, get you off the fence of ambivalence and, um, start to invest in a, a self-appreciation practice. You can also just do simple shit like find some fucking podcasts and shit that, or, or watch the videos or books or whatever to surround yourself with other voices that are more empowering, more accepting, more, you know, loving kindness, Buddhism type shit. Cause over time, if you put yourself in that environment, those external voices can slowly become internalized as well. Yeah, loving kindness is a great recommendation. Plus, that one, is true. Meta, meta meditation, and it, oftentimes it'll have you start with someone you generally feel love toward, and start mm-hmm. to direct it towards where it's tougher. And a really good practice is start with people you love and end your meditation with you. Yeah, if you just want to bring it back to the bear again, which I can, you know, <laughs> one of the other characters. Ricky, I had Sydney. been thinking the entire episode. <laughs> God, can we just please bring this back to the bear? That's really the thing that's missing. So thank you for doing that. There's a character, Sydney, who's reading a book written by like some basketball coach, which obviously I'm not going to remember the basketball coach's name because sports. Um, And she's reading this book and and she starts like using a lot of his language. And like you can see it that she – because she was struggling with it. And so she kind of brings in this other voice. And then you catch that she's like watching like old games – like that this coach was coaching and she's like, this is it. This is what like for, for the restaurant. So, you know, the bear really teaching us a lot about inner critic, how to navigate with it. I've heard of two bears, one cave, which is a podcast with Tom Segura and Burt Kreischer. That is the extent of my bear familiarity. Get out the two of you. I know. Get out. Get the fuck out of here. Imagine if we, we just ended the episode there. Um, <laughs> You're out. Anybody, do we have any final points that we want to make on inner critics? Inner critics are bullshit. That's it. Get out. I think inner critics are very real and the, the nuance of working with them. It's very no, nuanced existence. in my experience. I think, there, I, I think they do exist. I'm saying their existence is bullshit. Like, fuck them. Oh, okay. That's really important, Corey. Because usually when you say bullshit, you mean like, I don't believe in this as a term. And Justin and I are like, we literally just spent a fucking hour talking about the complexity and where it comes from and how to navigate it. Corey, you can't call bullshit on a concept. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but you can call bullshit on the fact that they exist and it's really fucking annoying. Fuck them. Fuck them. Fuck them. Yeah, I think for me, it it would be like... <laughs> 
If the shift to wave, if it, no, I got, I got one more. I I'm letting my hippy dippy fly again in this episode. For me, if like the heart of the inner critic is inner criticism, the shift move out of it is self love. And again, for me, that includes finding a, a, a way to love the inner critic. That's been a really powerful pathway for me. And yes, it's hippy dippy, but it's the thing that worked for me. Listen, it's why Esmeralda is named Esmeralda, not like mean Ricky. It's Esme. <laughs> yeah. We're hanging out, girlfriend. I think that's it, guys. I think we did right. it. Well, on that note, Corey, you want to you wanna finish us off? Toodles. Toodles.